So this week, we are wrapping up what's been a three-week series around the topic of faith and work. Uh, Not faith and works in the sense of whether or not you can earn your salvation. You can't, in case you were wondering. Uh, But rather, what sort of a foundation does the Bible lay for our jobs, our nine-to-five, the way that we work in the world that God has made? The first week, we began at the beginning, specifically in Genesis chapter 1. And we just looked at the framework that was set for us. What sort of a God is it that we believe in as Christians? We see that this is a God who works. He creates the world, but then he stoops down throughout the days of Genesis 1, and he forms and shapes and fills the world that he's made. He fills it with good and beautiful and useful things. Ultimately, he forms human beings in his image, And he places this stamp on them, but he also gives them this vocation to be image bearers. And this this charge of bearing the image of God is really a call that God places on people to interact with his world in such a way that it reveals the character of the God whose world it is. And this is a God who works. And so we see this foundation laid for, for human labor, human work. Work has dignity. God works in the world, and we as people work in the world that God has made. But there's more to be said because the Bible says more about work. And anybody who's held the job for any length of time knows that work is not just this uh, wonderful, happy, skipping through a field of unicorns and sunshine. Uh, There are things about work that are frustrating. And as the narrative of Genesis goes on, we see that work is corrupted by sin. Uh, labor is one of the things that's cursed by human rebellion against God. And so now, work is almost this Jekyll and Hyde reality of human existence. It has the potential for incredible fruitfulness and fulfillment and joy to produce things that are uh, interesting and beautiful and helpful, but it's also been corrupted and it can, it can lead to futility and to frustration and to thorns. And the same hands and minds that can produce things like the iPhone can produce things like the atom bomb. One that is profoundly helpful, although I guess we might contest that depending on how addicted you are to your phone. Uh, One that is unquestionably destructive. Work has been corrupted. And like everything that stands in the shadow of Eden, it must be redeemed. Last week, we talked about how the gospel sets right our work. Uh, The fact that Jesus, uh, the Son of God, when he takes on human flesh, he doesn't just appear to be human. He's not just sort of like, tricked you, I'm not really a full human being. Uh, But he takes on everything that it means to be human because everything about us has fallen, including our work. And so Jesus, uh, the Son of God, takes on human form and likeness and will, but he also takes a job. He becomes a carpenter. And in touching this aspect of what it means to be human, he begins the process of redeeming it. And there's no greater product of the evil that's been introduced in human work than the cross. Uh, This thing that was constructed to destroy people, uh, to make them appear less than human, and yet Christ comes to the cross. And and we say that Jesus was crucified, and that's true, but there's also a sense in which Christ, uh, the cross doesn't just happen to Christ, but Christ happens to the cross. And it moves from being this thing that obscures God and makes the world seem godless to becoming this thing that shows the fullness of the beauty and the love of God in a way that never could have been imagined. And yet the gospel is better news than just that. 
Although I would say that many American Christians are missing the boat on this because many of us function under this sort of Looney Tunes conception of the end game of the Christian life. If you've ever watched all these awful cartoons from like the 70s, um, the character gets killed, they either get hit by a car, or they get an anvil dropped on their head, or they jump off a cliff or, or whatever, and they die, and the little ghost version of the Roadrunner floats up into the sky and plays the harp among the clouds. And many of us as Christians sort of conceive of that as being the Christian hope, that if I, if I run off of a cliff or get an anvil dropped on my head, uh, that I'm going to go be in heaven and play the harp. That's not really very hopeful. That's not super exciting. I don't know that that gives you much to, to hope in. But fortunately, that's not the theology of the Bible. That's the theology of cartoons. The Bible doesn't end with Christians dying and going to heaven. It ends with the Son of God returning and not destroying creation, but renewing and reconciling creation. And that matters because if the end game of your life on earth is you just leaving the earth and it sort of just sort of dissolving and decaying, well, then there's not really much value in your work. You'll leave it behind and it'll rust like everything else. But if God is in the business not of doing away with creation, but renewing it and restoring it and reconciling it, then what you do in your nine to five in the world, in the here and now, it matters. It's significant. And yet, if we have these two pieces in play, about work being good but fallen, yet having value because God is restoring, we probably still haven't said enough about work. Uh, maybe you're like me. Uh, I, I hope you're not, but I trust since you're all sinners like me, then you're probably like me in some ways. Um, when I find something that I really like and something that I feel I'm being productive in, and when I lay hold of some sort of work that I think is producing something of value, I become really obsessive with it. Um, so like in the spring of last year, one of the bands that I played in decided that we were going to record this record. And so we sort of set aside time, we wrote the songs, we demoed everything out. And we had a schedule at one point where we would be in the studio on Monday and Friday because that was everybody's days off. But after like the first week or so, I, I started to really get excited about what I was doing and the work that was being put in. And, and recording a song is a really incredible experience as you add just sort of layer after layer. And it sounds less and less like kids messing around in their friend's living room and more and more like you being like a rock star. And I, I became obsessed with it. Uh, like what was supposed to be two days a week became pretty much every night of my week. And, and, and I, it was all I thought about. The only thing I listened to was my band because it was just super vain. And I was like, this is so cool. I can't wait for people to hear this. But by the end of the, this process of work that I'd set my hand to, I was exhausted. I was sleep deprived. I was missing deadlines here at the church because I had just become obsessed with this work that I was doing. And it, it had just consumed me in so many ways. And this is not just a problem that that you have if you like what you're doing. Because I realize there's people in this room who despise their jobs. You are miserable at what you're doing. And yet the temptation doesn't just exist for people who are happy in their work. The temptation to become obsessive and to, to cycle through work without rest, it, it, it exists for everyone. I was reading this article on NPR earlier today and they took this survey of just how uh, people are working in the United States right now, and there's this significant portion, I think it's 30% 30, 30 of people who are working over 50 hours a week in the United States. 
I can tell you that 30% of American citizens are not just the 30% who like their jobs. There's a lot of people who are unhappy, who are working a lot. But in that 30%, 50% of the people working more than 50 hours a week don't take any vacation time. They just keep working, I guess, until like they fall apart or their arms fall off or something. And then within the 50% who do take vacation time, 30% of them just work on their vacations. We are addicted to work, and it can become this endless cycle, except it's not really a cycle, it's just a line because nothing ever changes. We just work, and we work, and we work, and yet... The, the sort of thing that the Bible calls us to is not this life of perpetual labor and work that's endless until we just fall apart and our hearts give out. Instead, the Bible calls us to this pattern of work and rest, uh, to laboring and Sabbathing. And so we've spent two weeks talking about the goodness of work and why it's important that we work in the world. It seems fitting that we should end this by talking about rest because the Bible never pits work and rest as being these enemies but part of a process that God has ordained. And, and I think what we'll see as we walk through Scripture is that the model the Bible gives us for work and rest allows work to be a good thing without being an ultimate thing that destroys us. Today's going to be a little bit different. Uh, this time right now is going to be a little bit briefer and we're going to be doing something different around the Lord's Supper this evening. But for now, would you turn in your Bible with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Let me read our text for the evening. And we'll walk through it. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter. Your male servant or your female servant. Or your livestock or the sojourner who is within, within your gates. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and has made it holy. This is a passage of scripture that comes in the midst of a pretty famous passage of scripture called the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's still courthouses in our country that have these Ten Commandments engraved out front of them or in monuments around them. And what's so interesting about these Ten Commandments is that a significant portion of them are the sort of things that everybody can agree on, whether you're a Christian or not. Things like don't murder people. Most people, if you're not a serial killer, find that to be a generally agreeable statement. This seems like a good idea. Murder is not always a great, a great course of action. Uh, things like don't commit adultery, don't cheat on your spouse. Most decent human beings think, hmm, yeah, okay, I can, I can get, get by with that. Don't commit fraud. Don't lie under oath. Again, these are things that are universally agreed upon among maybe not everybody, but a huge portion of people. These are things that many of us would say are foundational to just a conception of right and wrong in the world. And so it's so interesting to me that right in between murder and adultery and not worshiping idols is this commandment to rest. In the middle of these things that we think are of the utmost importance, like not killing people, uh, or carving images of uh, whatever, Teletubbies, and bowing down and worshiping them, right in the midst of these commandments is this strange thing where God says, you need to take a break. What does that say about the sort of God that we serve? That next to murder and adultery and idolatry, he says, you need to rest. Well, I can tell you this, it says 
something, I think, profound about God because in it we see this God who's deeply concerned not just with your physical state, but with your, uh, not just with your spiritual state, but with your physical state. It's a God who's not removed or unaware of the frustrations that come from working in a fallen world. It's a God who's not deaf to your exhaustion. And I know that there's some of you in here who are exhausted by your jobs and the cycle of life. This is a God who is not just holy, but he is also kind and patient and calling us to rest in his kindness. And yet, so often we come up with reasons why we ought to refuse this kindness, why we ought not to rest, why we have other things that are necessary that should take the place of us uh, remembering the Sabbath, keeping it holy, and resting as God has called us to. I, I can tell you this, this happened to me this week. Um, I haven't actually taken a vacation day in like six months. Uh, I've not come to work, but I just work from my house instead. Uh, or I've been out of town, but it's all sort of work-related. And so about a month ago, uh, Tom, who's the executive pastor here, said, hey, you're taking mandatory vacation time in May. Like, you have to take a break or you're going to have a meltdown. And so I, I gave him, like, these three days that I was going to take off at the beginning of this week, and then I just came into work anyways. And Tom walked into my office and said, what are you doing here? I here are your vacation days. And, and I came up with all sorts of excuses. Well, there's the stuff I had to get done and I had, to, I had to meet with somebody and this came up and I didn't want to put this on anybody's plate. And I piled on the Tower of Babel's worth of excuses as to why I couldn't actually take a break because I was so important to the life of this church that I couldn't be gone for two or three days. That's not true, by the way. It continues to function without me just fine, especially now that I'm not the janitor anymore. Um, that maybe I couldn't have taken a break from. I realize that, that many of us are in financial situations that requires us to work more than usual. Uh, we're, we're in hard times, and this requires a season in which we have to labor uh, with greater intensity. But for most of us, the primary reason why we don't heed this command of God right next to murder and adultery and bearing false witness and honoring our parents is not because we actually have that much to do but instead because we have a startling lack of confidence in God's ability to manage our lives without our help. I think that lays at the heart or lies at the heart of so much. It shows that for many of us, we are gripping at material needs so tightly that the concept of letting go even for a day to trust God seems unthinkable. And I realize that there are some of us in here, like me, I'm preaching to myself here because I'm bad at it. There's some of us in here who are so concerned with taking a day to step back that, that this is a difficult thing for you to be called to. But, but I, I want to paint this for you. To actually participate in the Sabbath, to take a day and set it aside, to not work at all, but just to rest. Uh, this is not just you being obedient. It's a declaration of your confidence in God's sovereignty. It's a way of declaring that you're confident that God can handle your life without you meddling in it, just for a day. And this was a radical call for Israel, because this is an agricultural society. Like, if you stop working, the food stops being produced. And God's saying, I want you to rest anyways. This is a profound declaration of confidence that God is sovereign and does not need your help. This is the call to rest and to Sabbath. 
But this call goes beyond just you and I not working. We're told six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is God's Sabbath. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So this call to rest in the midst of a week of work doesn't just go to the people who are high and mighty and wealthy and who can afford to take a day off. And it doesn't go to them so that they can pass off all of their work to their underlings. This call to rest goes to everyone, down to the animals, that no one is to be called to work on the Sabbath, which I think sort of underscores something profound here about what it means for us to be the people of God. Because the people of God are meant to be a source of rest for those who are around them as well to be a source of refreshment and rejuvenation, not just for one another, but even for the outsider. You'll notice that the last person listed here is the sojourner, somebody who's not even a member of the nation of Israel who may not even be Jewish. Give them rest. Let them rest. Let them see the rest that the God of heaven and earth provides for his people. So maybe you are particularly pious, and you're pretty good at not working on Sunday. You blocked off your schedule. And yet, after church, you become a terror to the person waiting on you for lunch. You are just the worst possible table to wait on. You've failed to grasp the heart of the Sabbath because you are not being a source of rest for those who are around you. This is a call that the people of God would extend God's rest across the borders of creation that we would rest well. God is interested in the sort of rest that blesses everyone around us. Now I realize that there's some of us in here who are doers, and the concept of taking a day out of the week to do nothing, at least nothing related to your occupation, probably is giving you sweaty palms right now. You're kind of freaking out at the thought of just not doing things. I don't understand you but I know that you exist and there are people like this in the world. I'm just not such a person. But for some of us, we hear this idea of not working and that is equated with laziness in our minds. Not working for a whole day sounds like we just sort of sit in bed and stare at the ceiling or like watch Netflix or catch up on whatever series that we've TiVo'd. Is TiVo still a thing? I don't know. I'm like 400. Um, but we're, we're, we equate it with laziness and yet the, the sort of rest that God is calling us to in the Sabbath, it's not a passive rest. It's this active rest. There was this passage that Katie read for us out of the book of Deuteronomy during our worship. And um, it's interesting because the book of Deuteronomy really records Moses' farewell speech. So Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, and then as they stand on the edge of the promised land, Moses reminds them of the law that God gave them at Sinai, and he sort of, uh, he unpacks it. Uh, So he'll state certain things from the law, and then he'll sort of explain why it's important and why it's significant and why they've been called to it. And when Moses gets to the Ten Commandments, and when he gets to this commandment, the commandment to rest, he says it like this, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates, that your male servant, your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt 
And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Pay attention to what's tied together here. Moses reminds them, you need to take the seventh day and you need to rest. But the resting is not you twiddling your thumbs and taking really long naps. It's a resting that includes you remembering what God has done. There is this call for the people of Israel to remember how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, even as they rest in the work that God is doing on their day off. Yet we as Christians, we see this concept of the Sabbath really filled to the brim in so many ways. Because now we're not just looking back at an exodus from Egypt. We're looking back at this greater exodus that happened at the cross when the church from every tribe and every tongue and every nation was delivered, not out of slavery to men, but out of slavery to sin. God calls us to rest again, but he calls us to remember the greater works of God that we see now on this side of the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So far from being this momentary delay in our productivity and our work, Sabbath rest becomes this fountain from which our work flows as we remember the work of Christ, as it shapes our own work in the world that he has redeemed by his precious blood. We set aside time to rest and to remember and to reflect on the work of God so that it will mark our work as we go back in the week and work in God's world. So we find ourselves here sort of at the end of this series. I hope at this point we recognize that work is important. Your job is not a throwaway aspect of your life. It's not just an end to a paycheck. It's part of bearing the image of God well. But it's not enough for you to just work if you don't also follow this commandment to rest and rest well and remember what God has done. When the Christian life then is governed by these two great rhythms, which are shaped by the one true gospel, we work in God's world as we bear his image and we rest in the finished work of Christ as we wait for his return.